I Will Trust Brexit Focus with Paul Goslin and Jared Dean. Welcome to the Hollywell Brexit Focus podcast. This is the third in our series looking at Brexit and the impact that it might have in the Northwest. My name is Jared Dean and I'm joined today by our Brexit expert, Paul Gosling. First of all, our funders. This podcast is funded through the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland and we're delighted for their support. So, Paul, you're very welcome. We'll get straight into Brexit Watch. As always, has been a busy month. What's the first thing uh, that you'd, you'd like to talk about in Brexit? What? Well, we would very much like to know what the British government's position on Brexit is, because <laughs> actually that affects us in the border area very much indeed. There is still a lack of clarity. The uh-huh. cabinet still doesn't have an agreed position. We've heard Boris Johnson talk about Brexit. We've heard David Davis, who's in charge of the Brexit negotiations, talk about Brexit. And we still know very little, and neither of them even referred to the question of Ireland and the future of the border. Now, we know that the Cabinet is having more meetings, so hopefully it will then decide its position. But it is almost two years since the referendum, and actually the British government still doesn't know what it wants out of the negotiations, so it's not really surprising that negotiations haven't got very far. The six fame speeches you've already mentioned that Boris Johnson and David Davis have given two of them that are going to lead up to Theresa May giving the sixth speech, given the position. Are you optimistic that we're going to get a position at some stage? Well, obviously the government does have a legitimate concern that it doesn't want to give away its negotiating position. The problem is it doesn't really have a negotiating position to give away. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Prime Minister is particularly concerned about keeping her party together. And that is looking increasingly difficult. Uh, the former Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Owen Paterson, is one of the hard Brexiteers. He has suggested that the Good Friday Agreement should be scrapped. And you have to interpret that as because the Good Friday Agreement is potentially an impediment to having the type of Brexit that he and yeah. his colleagues, such as John Redd, would want. In other words, they want a hard Brexit. They want to get as far away from the European Union as possible. It's very difficult to understand how you can have that type of arrangement while having an open border within Ireland. And you had one of the other Conservative hard Brexiteers the other day saying, reiterating that the objective behind Brexit is to have control of our borders, the UK's borders. Uh-huh. If you have control of the UK's borders, I don't see how you can then have an open border within Ireland. So Theresa May is under a lot of pressure from the right of her party, led by Owen Paterson and John Redwood, in terms of what they want. On the other hand, the Labour Party's position is now much more clear. Emily Thornberry has said that the Labour Party wants to stay in the customs union. Mm-hmm. Jeremy Corbyn has now said also that the Labour Party wants to stay, stay in the customs union. Given that probably something like half the Conservative Party of, inside the House of Commons also wants to stay within the customs union, there is a possibility that the government party, the Conservative mm. Party, will split over this. If it did split within the House of Commons, then actually you can see a situation where the UK may stay within the customs union and that way we keep an open border within Ireland. But basically, we still, almost two years after the referendum, don't know what Brexit means. The Prime Minister famously said, Brexit means Brexit, leave means leave, but we still don't know what Brexit or leave actually mean in practice. One of the things that was also talked about during the month was the promise not to reduce regulatory standards after Brexit? Yes, David Davis, the Secretary of State for Brexit, has said that there will be no race to the bottom in terms of regulation. 
and that the ra- uh, the race, in a sense, will be race to the top. But he, he may speak for the Cabinet on that, but he doesn't speak for the entire Conservative Party on that. Clearly, that is not the view. You've also had a report come out from a group calling themselves Economists for Free Trade that believes that actually Brexit could increase economic activity, this could increase the size of the economy. Uh, but their argument is that you would do that by reducing regulation. So, And okay. these people are, are pretty influential. They're people that were behind... Uh, Margaret Thatcher introducing the poll tax. So they do actually have leverage over the Conservative Party, but their track record in terms of uh, policy advice hasn't been very good. And personally, I would be pretty doubtful about whether their predictions uh, would ever turn out correct. Right, because also over the last month, there have been studies um, outlining what the potential impact of Brexit might be, and they're not as rosy as they might have been picked. That's right. We've now got a series of um, fairly objective analysis. I mean, some people would say they're not very objective, but they're they're an attempt at an objective analysis about what Brexit means. We had uh, the European Parliament a few months ago saying that uh, its analysis would suggest that the Northern Ireland economy would get about 3% smaller. Uh, We've had a leak from the UK Treasury, uh, the government department in charge of finance, uh, and it says that according to type of Brexit, the, the level of uh, where we would be in, in, over the next period of time, over the next 15 years, is basically that we would be smaller under Brexit than we would otherwise be. And they say, basically, if we were stayed within the customs union, our economy would be 2.5% smaller than it would otherwise be uh-huh. if we stayed within the European Union. That if we have uh, an agreement, a free trade agreement with the European Union, we'll be 8% smaller than we otherwise would be. And if we leave without any agreement, then our economy... Uh, in Northern Ireland, that is to say, would be 12% smaller than it would otherwise be without leaving the European Union. So Mm. that clearly is very damaging. We've also had uh, published uh, by the Irish government a report on what Brexit potentially means for the Irish economy. And they're suggesting that the damage over the next 13 years, their analysis looks at, is that, you know, basically if we have a soft Brexit, a very soft Brexit, it'll be 2.8%, a fairly soft Brexit, 4.3% less economic activity and basically the economy of Ireland this is the Irish Republic would be 7% smaller over the next 13 years if there is basically the UK just falling outside of the European Union without an agreement so all these studies say basically that the Brexit will be very damaging but you have to put a health warning on this economists never get things completely right Um, what you can say is that the vast majority of economists believe our economy will be significantly smaller as a result of Brexit particularly in Northern Ireland it's not the worst regional impact anywhere Uh in the UK but it is one of the worst not exactly a rosy picture then no basically it's pretty negative yeah well we're all looking forward to that one then and then at the start of the month uh, Michelle Barnier came out and said that part of the border deal has yet to be agreed, which is kind of what we were talking about the last time round, where it looked like the agreement that was reached was a bit of a holding position. Absolutely. What we had was called the phase one agreement, which enables to go on to phase two for the trade talks. But really, increasingly, it looks, I mean, I think the phrase I used at the time was it means all things to all people. Uh And I think we've got clarity that actually it's not clear what it means <laughs> so basically it was a way to get the government the uk government and the european commission to move on to phase two of the talks they had nice words about our commitment to having an open border but you still don't know unless you know what the shape of brexit is you don't know what what in practice it means about the border so the promises of having an open border actually don't really mean anything at the start of february we also had the word that i cannot pronounce that 
Ireland Exit Conference and the RDS? Yes, the R-Exit. That's right. Yes, we've had Grexit, we've had Brexit, and now we've got I-Rexit. But I've actually, um, it was Nigel Farage, former leader of UKIP, uh-huh. uh, friend of Donald Trump, who came over to Dublin to say, basically, that Ireland should retain a close relationship with the United Kingdom, that the future of the two economies should be closely linked, and that, that means that Ireland should leave the European Union, because in his view, the European Union is a failed and failing institution. Hmm. Um, they had about 400 people attend in the RDS in Dublin. Um, they were very keen. They were very keen on Nigel Farage. They're very keen on Donald Trump. They were very unkeen on the European Union and European hmm. Commission. But uh, every, everybody uh, I listen to who knows what they're talking about in Ireland says the chances of Ireland leaving the European Union are really pretty slim, unless the European Union itself has another crisis, which is still possible. Italy's going to the polls in a few days' time. Uh, it's got serious problems both politically and economically. So it is possible that we'll have uh, continued economic problems within the European Union. That may make people think again. But for the way it looks, basically, Ireland has done very well out of membership of the European yeah. Union, and it has absolutely no intention. There's no, none of the major political parties have got any intention of supporting the idea of Ireland leaving the European Union. I'm surprised they got so many people at the conference as well, to be quite honest with you. That's it for Brexit Watch for this month. This month for the Brexit interviews, you managed to meet with a, a range of people showing a broad spectrum of political opinion when it comes to Brexit. We attempted to have a full diversity of opinion coming into this uh, podcast. Uh, we were not entirely successful. We asked Jim Nicholson, uh, the Austin Unis MEP, to... to be interviewed. Uh, his office said that he had uh, a number of international commitments, which meant that he was unavailable. We asked the DUP MEP Diane Dodds for an interview. Um, her office did not respond to repeated requests. Uh, we requested also that uh, DUP MP Gregory Campbell be interviewed. Uh, he didn't respond to uh, two messages either. So unfortunately, we didn't get a view from the union side. What we did instead get was an interview with uh, finance minister, former finance minister of Greece, Yanis Varoufakis, who was over in both Derry and Belfast. So we interviewed him. We also interviewed Senator Mark Daly from the Erectus in the south, uh, who is leading the Erectus study on what Brexit means in terms of the possible reunification of Ireland and what it means for the Irish economy. Mm -hmm. And we also interviewed Sinn Féin MEP Martina Anderson. So we got a reasonable spread with an interesting selection of views. Brilliant. And we're going to hear those now. This podcast is funded by the Central Good Relations Fund, the Reconciliation Fund of the Department of Foreign Affairs, and core-funded by the Derry City and Straban District Council and the Community Relations Council. Yanis Varoufakis, the former Greek finance minister who had the well-known run-in with European Commission officials during Greece's financial crisis, was visiting both Derry and Belfast in the last few weeks. And I had the opportunity to speak to him at a rather noisy meeting in Belfast, and he was able to tell us what he thought from his experience in dealing with the European Commission was likely to happen as a result of our negotiations on Brexit. Well, the Brexit process is proceeding with uh, incredible incompetence um, on the part of London and um, malice on the part of Brussels. Brussels is uh, determined to have a very bad deal uh, for both European peoples and the people of Britain uh, because the one thing that they fear the most is a mutually advantageous agreement. 
<laughs> because a mutually advantageous agreement with Britain would signal in the mind of the bureaucrats and the politicians in Berlin and Paris that anyone who challenges the European Union, uh, any uh, Spanish, Hungarian, Polish, Greek government that challenges the European Union uh, may start getting the idea that uh, you can do this and get away with a decent mutually advantageous agreement. Uh, so what I think that is going to happen in the end is either we're going to have no agreement, uh, at the hardest of hard Brexits, or we're going to end up with a very, very bad agreement, which is nothing more than what Canada got, which for Canada is fine because it's links trade-wise, service-wise, you know, in terms of links of students and communities and the level of the imaginary are very small. And either of those options for the people of Ireland means potentially a hard border, a real border. Absolutely. It was the cynicism with which both Brussels and Theresa May uh, agreed to leave this to one side on the basis of some fake commitment to not having a border when uh, everything else that they said points to a hard border. doesn't cease to amaze me. And what would be your advice to the people in the northwest of Ireland about how they should engage themselves in what's going on in the wider politics of Brexit? I think the the only strategy available to, to them and to actually all the decent, uh, uh, reasonable, rational Europeans is a Norway-style European Economic Area Agreement. And I will support that view on the basis of the following arguments. Firstly, yes, Brexit has to be respected. We who fought against it lost, and it will be unacceptable from from a democratic perspective to say to the people who voted in favor of Brexit, your vote doesn't count. At the same time, we have to acknowledge that the Brexit referendum was binary, was yes, no. There was no agreement and no mandate for any particular kind of Brexit. Norway is not in the European Union. Uh, so, moving to a Norway-like stance, position, is to respect Brexit. Uh, the argument that the people of Britain voted in favour of ending freedom of movement, uh, getting rid of the EU nationals and so on, is neither here nor there. This was not what the referendum resulted in. And let's not forget that it won with 1.8%. So as long as more than 1.8% of those who voted in that referendum did not care about ending freedom of movement, there is no mandate for ending it. So, the next argument is that both business and citizens need uh, um, a degree of certainty and a period of time during which uh, to adjust to any long-term Brexit arrangements. The two-year period uh, triggered by the Article 50 um, process is simply not enough for that. Uh, and finally, the only intellectually and politically powerful argument in favour of Brexit I know is the one about restoring sovereignty to the House of Commons. Well, the last thing that has been restored to the House of Commons was sovereignty. This process has completely taken away any control that the British Parliament has over the, pro- the process. The British Parliament is not debating the negotiations, they are not even privy to the negotiations, they uh, don't even have any say in the way that EU law is going to be transcribed into British law. That power has uh, been shifted over to to cabinet. So the only way of genuinely respecting uh, 
sovereignty, the sovereignty of the House of Commons, is by having, for, for instance, an agreement that Britain is going to shift in 2019 into a, the European Economic Area from the European Union, a five-year period which is renewable at the behest of the next House of Commons, thus sovereignty of the House of Commons. And during this period, the House of Commons, in peace and quiet, and without a gun to its head, without a ticking clock, can decide what kind of long-term arrangements it wants with the EU. And what should individuals in the northwest of Ireland do to try and influence the process? They should organise in favour of an always there agreement. They can join DiEM25, they can start uh, civic forums, they can start uh, citizens' assemblies demanding uh, that, yes, Brexit should be respected, but at the same time, these negotiations that are taking place between Mr Bernier and uh, Mr Davis should be should end because they are not going to produce anything which is good for anyone and they should be instead replaced by an instantaneous off-the-shelf EEA agreement that keeps Britain in the single market, prevents the erection of a border and gives businesses and citizens the certainty that they need to proceed in the next five years. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Mark Daly is a member of the Irish Senate and is leading the Erectus study looking at how Brexit will impact on Ireland and what it means for a possible reunification of Ireland. I asked him what he thought was likely to happen next. Well, a lot of that's going to be decided in the next couple of weeks when uh, the European Commission put a legal document around the uh, agreement before Christmas uh, that the British government signed up to and there seems to be some divergence in views as to what they signed up to. Uh, the British don't seem to agree with the Irish point of view uh, or the European point of view. I suppose that's kind of in the short term. Uh, Brexit, as we know, is going to be very bad for uh, a lot of regions in Britain. Uh, the EU have shown us that in Northern Europe the 10 most disadvantaged areas of those 10, 9 of them are in the UK and Northern Ireland is one of those. We already know uh, through the UN Human Development Index that uh, Northern Ireland is ranked way bef below the Republic in terms of health, uh, education and income. Uh, the Republic is 8th in the world, uh, the UK is 16th and Northern Ireland on its own would be ranked 44th in the world. So. When you're looking at the issues and the discussion around unification, there are a lot of positives, but of course there are a lot of issues that are simply not to do with economics uh, that we also have to look at. And that's why uh, I included in my report on unification the issue of addressing unionist concerns. And I have included some of those concerns that were highlighted to me. And they broadly are the issues of identity in terms of how would a, a, a unionist or British identity be respected and protected in a future United Ireland. The issue of land ownership in terms of the concerns that many farmers have that their land will be taken off them. Now when I say that to southern politicians many of them would uh, would look at me bewildered uh, because that's not what happened after uh, the independence in 1921 but 
if it's a concern it does need to be addressed and the issue needs to be uh, stated clearly by the Irish government that there would be no change but in the absence of that clarity of course there is always the possibility that politicians would use it uh, for their own ends and then there is the issue of uh, retribution for former members of the security forces who were involved in collusion with uh, loyalist paramilitary gangs and what would happen then and again there needs to be clarity around that uh, and what would happen so I suppose there is the, the long-term issue of will there be a referendum, anybody I've spoken to in the North over the last while have said quite clearly that they believe there will be. It mightn't be for five or ten years, but at some stage, uh, given the changing dynamics in Northern Ireland, there will be. And uh, as uh, John uh, Bradley said, policy neglect seldom goes unpunished, so therefore uh, it would be very prudent of both governments to plan for that. Not only just about getting Stormont up and running, not about just dealing with the immediate and longer term impacts of Brexit, but also uh, the fact that at some stage under the Good Friday Agreement there is provision for a referendum and that is most likely to happen in in the next 10 to 20 years. So your feeling is that the issues raised by Brexit do mean that uh, questions will be asked over the future of Northern Ireland and the future of a possible United Ireland again? Well, yeah, and I mean, we know from the economic facts that Northern Ireland was a huge powerhouse uh, 100 years ago in terms of 80% of, of the productivity was around Belfast in the three counties around Belfast and the Republic was largely a beer and biscuits economy and it, the, the North was ships and shirts. But the ships have gone over the horizon uh, and now we have to look at that horizon anew and kind of figure out, well, what is over that horizon now for Northern Ireland and what is the best future for all the people on this island? And how do you make sure that not just for the next five or ten years as we deal with the impact of Brexit that we, we face those challenges, but also what do we do in relation to creating a new island, a new agreed Ireland uh, for the next hundred years? And you must learn the lesson of Brexit. The lesson of Brexit is that you don't hold a referendum and then tell everybody what the future looks like. You have to discuss about the issues of housing and health, education, economics and job opportunities, culture, uh, administration and and all of those issues and then people will know what they're getting whether they vote for or against it at least they know what the future would look like which is actually the opposite of Brexit because people were told a lot of things uh, one day and the following day after the referendum they were told actually none of that was true And but now it, it appears to be too late Senator Mark Daly, thank you very much indeed for speaking to us Thank you Martina Anderson is a Sinn Féin MEP uh, She is known for being very critical of the UK government and she explained to us exactly why she's so critical. Well, the British government knows what it doesn't want, but it certainly doesn't know what it wants. And what is concerning, because it affects us, because the negotiations that has taken place is going to have implications for the North, is that it's quite evident from a European perspective that it's a government in chaos, cabinet that is fighting with one another and no one knows the British better than us by way of negotiations and looking at their behaviour in Europe with Michel Barnier and the the negotiation team it was very clear that politically they weren't across or agreeing to a framework where there was commonality across the cabinet I think that was evident in David Davis' appearance, as he has done very briefly, coming over with the team, leaving the team 
going back to Britain and then coming over at the end. And for those of us that know what negotiations look like and feel like, it's quite clear that there hasn't really been serious negotiations from their part because I don't think the ask of Europe has been clear in their head because there's a number of asks. So you think basically that because the cabinet hasn't agreed a unified position, they've not really seriously entered into negotiations even at this stage with the European Commission because they don't really know what they want and therefore they can't negotiate for it? I'm convinced of that, but I'm also convinced that they are keen to move into phase two negotiations. So in December the 8th, on December the 8th, when we had the joint report being published, we had advocated caution because the British government has got a track record, a historical track record of reneging on every agreement that they have made not every, most, and we did not accept the assessment from the Irish government that what they had secured were cast iron guarantees. And it does feel as if the phase one agreement basically means anything to anyone who wants to read it in a particular way. I mean, it's not really, I mean, it feels as if the promises about an open border don't necessarily mean anything when we don't have clarification about what the UK government's objectives are. Yeah, well, we felt the same. But we also um, are holding the Irish government to their word where they have said they secured cast iron guarantees because, you know, the agreement, we got the Parliament, the European Parliament, to, uh, to the point of declaring that the agreement was conditional. So we got conditionality built into it and the Parliament has said that unless the, what has been committed to is transferred faithfully and fully into a legal text, then you cannot move into phase two negotiations. We also had the council saying the same, because if you recall, and I think he uh, declared their hand too soon, that David Davis, uh, the ink was hardly dry. I don't know if uh, Theresa May had even made it back to to Britain when uh, he said it's only statements of intent. And do you think it is legally enforceable in any way, the phase one agreement? Well, what, what Michel Barnier has said on Monday, I think it was this week, uh, but certainly in recent times, he has said that the only part of the options in relation to Ireland that can be translated into legal texts is the backstop agreement, uh, the option three. So in the event of them going over a cliff or the effect of them having a bad deal or a deal that was going to be detrimental to the political peace processes here, that there would be full alignment across the island. To and you think that is legally enforceable, the idea of regulatory alignment, whatever well, that means? Yeah, well, what I mean, some people have narrowed the, the, the language to mean only the areas of cooperation and implementation bodies but I think uh, a closer examination of it quite clearly states it's to support north-south cooperation, it is to support the all-Ireland economy and it is to support the Good Friday Agreement and all of its parts, to protect the Good Friday Agreement and all of its parts. So it's not just limited to areas of cooperation and I think when it is being reported it should be referred to in those, that context of those three elements. But your view is that those elements are potentially legally enforceable? 
if they are transferred into a legal text in the document, then I believe then that is putting the commitments into a more concretized guarantee. If they are not, then I think I was in the, at the Oireachtas Committee on Wednesday and we had Fine Gael TDs and MEPs, Mary McGuinness, saying that there would be a global embarrassment uh, for the British government if they reneged on this deal. And I had to do everything but you know laugh, and I wasn't being meaning to be dismissive uh, of her, but I said, like, we have got a history of them reneging in this deal, this country knows. And they can cope with being embarrassed, really. Yeah, of course, embarrassment means nothing to, to, to the British establishment. And um, so I, that's, that was why, at the time, as soon as we had read the agreement, and uh, our now leader, Mary Lou MacDonald, had been off with uh, Taoiseach and, and the Thomas John, and was trying to reinforce the concrete cast-iron guarantees. And only this week, Thomas John had launched um, a website, and on the website he repeats the cast-iron guarantees that they secured uh, and it's a Brexit website for, for anyone to go on to, to get information about Brexit. And lastly, what's your prediction of what will happen in terms of the border? Well, I believe that the opportunities that exist in Europe has not been exhausted fully. I think right. that the goodwill that is there and the determination not to do damage to a political and a peace process is quite evident. When the phase one uh, negotiations were signed off in, in June or in December, that was as a result of Parliament having had its third resolution. The first resolution, the Parliament has supported the Good Friday Agreement in all of its parts, no hardening of the border in Ireland and the unique and special circumstances. I actually assessed at that time, despite getting the Parliament to that phase, that most of the MEPs actually seen the peace process and political process as a handshake, as a peace accord. From from April until October, I worked the Parliament, literally going in and knocking at hundreds of MEPs' doors and sitting them down and explaining what designated special status for the North remaining within the EU, why that was important, and in the context of the Good Friday Agreement, strands one and strand two. They, uh, the MEPs get that now, and that was why we had an increase in support. I think it was 560 at the uh, October resolution of MEPs who voted for the that if the Britain didn't stay in the custom union in the single market, that th- that the North needed to stay in, in it in some form, and that there would be there was a reference to the areas of cooperation, all areas of cooperation. I believe that designated special status or whatever you call it I am not precious about the name we've never but we had to have a terminology to go to knock on MEP storage to explain what we meant and uh, the Antisha calls it special arrangement Michelle Barney uh, on Monday says that the North needs special status there is a growing support for the need for special circumstances for the North to be taken into account in the legal framework and if that doesn't happen we have exhausted ourselves trying to work within the context of the Good Friday Agreement and the consent principle. But I think what needs to be given recognition to is that both North and South, and I do declare there were only opinion polls done at Christmas, but for the first time ever people had declared that if it was going to be a choice between staying with Britain and out of the EU that they would join the Reunite Ireland and stay in the EU. But 
what you're saying is you believe there's support within the European Parliament for a special arrangement of some kind, call it what you will, for Northern Ireland, that the Irish government would support that, mm-hmm. but that isn't in itself a prediction about what will happen in terms of the Northern Ireland position. I mean, what's your expectation, what's your prediction about what will happen to Northern Ireland? I believe if we don't get that, we're going into a train crash of a hard Brexit. The British government will go over a cliff and take us with it. And they have no consideration of or care about what happens here. And the Parliament and the Council sent a signal was the council in, in April of this of last year, 29th of April, when it had its Brexit meeting. And it had said that it was called the German Clause, that in the event of um, the border poll being triggered and reunification being, being the option of, of choice, that the North would automatically join the EU. I mean, when you're asking for a prediction, I, I do believe it. But even that would take time, wouldn't it? Because it would take time to organise a poll, it would take t- time to have the arrangements put in place. So, yeah, there would, ha- there would clearly be a transition period during which time Northern Ireland, if, if the UK government doesn't agree a position with the European Commission and the European Union, including the Irish government, then the arrangements must surely be that the hard Brexit would involve some form of border within Ireland? Well, I think that the backstop agreement, um, the British government is a co-guarantor of an international agreement that is lodged at the United Nations. The Irish government is a co-guarantor of that agreement. Both the British and the Irish government and the EU have committed to protect and preserve that agreement in all of its parts. So this isn't just about some kind of whether it is fantasy for some people um, within, I would say, the DUP, um, politicians who, I believe, their Brexit position is to reinforce petition and to harden the border and would tolerate in a heartbeat a hard border re-emerging on this island, even though that they might declare otherwise, but their behaviour and what they have voted for must leave anybody to believe in the event of a no-deal situation and a cliff-edge scenario, then what Michelle Barney has said in the lesson or stays in custom union and single market, then a hard border is inevitable. But if that agreement in phase one, and that's why these weeks are crucially important for the Irish government to show that these cast-iron guarantees are going to be reflected in a legal treaty, treaty that will be voted on in the Parliament in March and will go in the, to the March Council meeting. So the treaty that is being worked on, the language that's being worked on at this moment in time, has to provide legal protections for the North to remain within the custom union and the single market. If that doesn't happen and a hard border comes to Ireland, then I believe that um, the acceleration of the discussion that is currently taking place around the reunification of this island will be the only option for people to salvage what we have. The Highwell Trust podcast presents Brexit Focus. As we draw near to the UK's exit from the European Union, Paul Goslin brings monthly updates on the negotiating processes, how Brexit is affecting us in the North West, whilst attempting to take away some of the fear and uncertainty from the issue on the local community. Hollywell Trust Brexit Focus podcast, released on the 25th of every month. 
Catch up on past episodes for free on our SoundCloud page, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher.com. Search Hollywell Podcast. Now that we've heard the interviews that you carried out over the last month or so, what's your main takeaways from each of them? Well, I think perhaps just as significant as what we listened to there is the fact that we didn't get any unionists to speak to us. Mm -hmm. Uh, This suggests to me, obviously, unionists are very engaged in the conversations about why Stormont has collapsed, but it doesn't sound to me as if there's any great level of optimism or certainty within unionism uh, about the Brexit conversation. And what uh, we also hear is basically a number of people believing that Brexit increases the likelihood of a united Ireland, not immediately, um, though Martin Anderson seems to be confident that it is a very short-term project. But I think over the longer term, Brexit does put on the table a greater likelihood of a united Ireland. And perhaps that is the signal that we should read from the fact that unionists haven't had the confidence to come on and be interviewed, as well as the confidence we've heard from both Martina Anderson and also from Mark Daly. Moving on to our final section then, then the Brexit questions. As always, there's the opportunity to ask some questions of Paul um, in relation to Brexit. And you can do that simply by emailing brexit at hollywelltrust.com and we'll endeavour to answer that uh, during the next podcast. But this month, Paul, you met with representatives or uh, members of Derry Well Women. This month, we've been given a number of questions from the Derry Well Women's Centre, uh, asking in particular about the impact of Brexit on healthcare facilities. Now, of course, we don't know the answer to a number of questions related to Brexit, but we do have a fairly clear idea about some things. So people have relied for a number of years on the European Health Insurance Card, or E111 as it used to be called. And Dairy Well Women uh, Group were particularly concerned about what the future will be for this uh, called the EHIC in short. And the truth is that it seems as if we won't get use of that in the future. Uh, The EHIC means that when we go on holiday, for example, to Spain, that we are uh, eligible for free healthcare. If, for example, we fall down and we injure a knee or uh, ankle or something like that. Now, after Brexit, we won't be able to rely on the EHIC. Uh, We won't receive an EHIC anymore. Uh, Not only that, but even people within Northern Ireland who have Irish passports probably won't be able to use an EHIC or receive an EHIC because I had a look at the Irish government website and it says that EHICs are available to people living within the European Union. So it's not about your passport, it's about where you live, at least according to the Irish government website. So I think the probability, I'm afraid, is that after Brexit, the European Health Insurance Card will not be available, so we will actually have to pay for healthcare, even in emergency situations when we're abroad. Uh, not only that, but actually we're likely to have to pay to visit countries. I mean, I probably don't uh, mean here uh, the Irish Republic, but if we go on holiday to Spain or to France, the probability is that we'll actually have to buy a visa to visit other countries in the European Union. Uh, The reason for this is that the European Commission is looking at ways to get more money because it's lost what effectively is the membership fee from the United Kingdom when the UK leaves Brexit, and it's looking for other ways to finance its operations. 
And one of the ways it's looking is to to increase the charges for visa, uh, access to EU countries, and also when the UK leaves, for UK residents to have to pay a visa charge to be allowed to visit other parts of the European Union. My guess is that, uh, practically speaking, that wouldn't apply to visit the, the south of Ireland, but of course also it wouldn't apply to people who have Irish passports who live in Northern Ireland. So there are a number of benefits that uh, apply for people who live in Northern Ireland but have an Irish passport. One of the other questions asked by the Derry World Women's Group is what happens in terms of access to medicines, whether some medicines that uh, people use regularly will no longer be available to through the NHS in the way they have in the past and actually that is possible there was an academic study done which suggested that leaving the European Union is likely to lead to uh, difficulty accessing some medicines but they also they were particularly concerned about access to blood and organs at the moment we're members of a European scheme which gives us the the right to use to to have access to a, a pooled supply across Europe or across the European Union, of blood and organs. Uh, it would look as if we'll fall outside of that scheme after we've left the European Union. But of course, these problems are, are small in comparison with the issue of staffing for the NHS. The NHS is very dependent on nurses and doctors from elsewhere in the European Union. Uh, we're already seeing a reduction in the number of people coming from the European Union to work in the NHS. In part, that is because there's a feeling, understandable feeling, for people from countries like Poland, Romania, Spain, France, that actually they're not welcome in the UK anymore. Because after all, one of the main reasons why people voted for Brexit was because they didn't want as many people from other countries living within the United Kingdom. And that has been felt by people who don't feel as welcome in the UK as they were in the past. Uh, they're also concerned about their right of uh, to continue to live in the UK after Brexit. So there's been a reduction in the number of people seeking to work in the NHS and some people leaving. Uh, but we don't know the extent to the effect of this because as well as this change, there's also a new language tests that are being applied to people from other countries so that they actually have to speak English fluently to be allowed to work in the NHS. So at the moment, we, while we know there's been a, a big fall in the number of people from other countries in the European Union seeking to work in the NHS, we don't know the extent to which that is caused by Brexit and to what extent it's caused by the language test. However, uh, there's another big impact, which is that the social care sector is even more dependent on overseas workers uh, from the European Union than the NHS is. So there's a bigger percentage of people working in residential care homes, uh, uh, visiting people, elderly people at home, giving them care facilities, washing them, ensuring that they've got food, etc. There's a big number of those people from the European Union, and there is a big risk to that sector and the viability and the sustainability of the care sector after Brexit. Now, we also have another question from Derry Well Women Group, which is actually not directly related to health, but is a major concern for a lot of people, which is about mobile phone charges. At present, because of European Union regulations, uh, we are not subject to, to roaming charges when we travel near the border or when we go on holiday. We can actually receive calls in Spain as if we were at home, 
Personally, that's meant that uh, my, at one point my, my mobile phone bill was about £100 a month uh, because of the roaming charges, and now it's down to about £30 a month. But after we've left the European Union, it is likely that we won't benefit anymore from this uh, abolition of international roaming charges. So we will have to pay much more attention to switching off our uh, international call facility, for example, when we're near the border, by which I mean we, if we don't allow our signal to move to an Irish signal, um, that will become increasingly important after we've left the European Union. Now, I'd remind listeners that uh, we are happy to answer other questions and we would welcome more listener feedback in terms of asking questions and we will try our best to answer those in next month's podcast. For now, thank you very much for your questions. Thank you, everybody, for to everyone who took part in our podcast this month. Thanks especially to our Brexit expert, Paul Gosling, who brings as imitable style but also a lot of knowledge on the subject as always our brexit focus podcast is available around the 25th of each month and the associated blog will appear on both the hollywell trust website and the journal the dairy journal website and in the the local paper as well and around that time keep listening and we look forward to talking to you again next month you can stay up to date with us on our social media pages on facebook look for the hollywell trust and on twitter it's at hollywell team